you, Father, for this morning. We thank you for your grace, your presence, for every heart here. And most importantly, we thank you for your heart, which continually beats for us, whether it beats for you or not. That you continually pursue us, whether we pursue you or not. Your grace is more powerful than our sin. Your blood is more powerful than our failures. You, God, are the standard of all holiness and righteousness. It's not our opinions. It's not our religion. It's not our fallen heads. It's not our deceived personalities or our preferences that we hold to our uniqueness. But, Lord, it's your uniqueness by which all things will be judged. So we, we come to your altar today. We lay down the things that we think, especially the things that we think we know. And we ask, Father, for your word to penetrate our hearts and that our minds would have a posture of repentance and change how we think about you and how you respond and react to us, Lord. For your son came preaching repentance first because repentance has to happen, the changing of mind before the kingdom can be fully embraced. So Lord, we just bless you, we honor you, and I need you, we need you, this country needs you, this city needs you, this church needs you. And we acknowledge our dependence upon you, and we beg for your blessings upon us, our country, your church, your people, that you may be glorified in all. And we ask these things believing and praying in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. You always do a really good job. Before we get going on any farther, can I get Emily to come up here? We're going to pray over her. Some of you guys who've made covenant with us, if you'll just come forward, we're going to pray her into the church. She's going to join us here. Uh, not that she has a choice, right? <laughs> She's kind of marrying somebody who's already here, so it kind of, well, she had a choice. We're just messing with you. We're glad you're choosing to be a part of us. We love you. You're important. So you guys just lay hands on her. We're just going to thank the Lord for her and um, just give her a blessing. Father, we thank you for her. We ask, Father, for uh, uh, her heart to be mended with ours and that her dreams and her visions would be uh, from you, from heaven. Lord, that the things that you speak to her would be a blessing to us and the things that we speak would be a blessing to her and that she would be a source of your glory in this body and outside of it. That God, that she makes covenant with you, uh, that, that you overflow that covenant back into her and into us and that we strengthen one another. We receive her. We bless her. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace and we receive her with gladness. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Welcome, welcome. Everybody okay this morning? Good, good. So a few of you are. The rest of you, well, we'll just pray for you. Hope you receive it. Did Abe tell a joke this morning? Oh, my goodness. Abe. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to break some humor here so that way you don't get mad at me for the rest of the sermon, okay? <laughs> All right, so there was a guy, uh, early 1800s, decided he was going to go explore the Wild West. 
He gets going on a train, hops out, realizes he's in the middle of nowhere, didn't buy a horse. Hiking through the mountains, finally comes across this horse camp to the top of the mountain there. He sees an old farmer sitting there. He says, man, I got to have a horse. My feet are killing me. I said, I don't care what it costs. I'll pay you. I need a horse. He said, I only got one that I can sell you. He said, it's a special horse and it's a little bit different. You got to pay attention because what I'm about to tell you next determines everything with this horse. He said, no problem. No worries. Here's your money. What do I need to do? He said, well, it's very important. He said, to get this horse to start running, you have to say, praise the Lord. And to get it to stop, you have to say, amen. He said, no problem. I got it. Well, this guy jumps on the horse. He's trucking through the West and he's going through a couple days later. All of a sudden, a snake jumps out, spooks the horse. The horse starts running straight toward a cliff. I mean, he's coming right at it. And he stops and he's like, oh my God, how do I get this horse to stop? His mind is frozen. He doesn't remember the commands. So naturally he starts to pray. He's praying, he's praying, and he ends his prayer with what? Amen. Amen. The horse comes to a screeching halt right at the edge of the cliff, and he goes, praise the Lord. (laughs) All right, there you go. Poor guy. So I have something on my heart this morning that I want to share with you because I believe it's vital not only to know but to be reminded of because if this is something we forget or fall prey to, the rest of our journey in Christianity kind of takes a nosedive. How many of you guys know that each person, including yourself, um, pursues and perceives God based upon how you personally perceive him? Everybody's got their corner market on their religion. Everybody's got their corner market on this. Everybody thinks they're right. Everybody thinks everybody else is wrong. You realize that? Which makes a lot of people wrong and only one person right all the time. But that person always happens to be you, right? Let's see, the next guy next to you, he thinks that's him. And the guy next to him thinks that's him. And the lady sitting next to that guy thinks it's her. And each person does that which is right in his own eyes. The problem with that is, is that we're going to meet the man. My opinion, your opinion, the guys next to you opinion will mean absolutely nothing. In fact, I think most of our opinions will be seen as absolutely ludicrous. Jesus chuckles at our opinions of him. Because you're talking about a God who measured the sea in the palm of his hands, and yet you think, and I think, and we think that we know him. You realize that we only know 4% of our existence. We've only studied and understood 4% of our own reality. Most of the ocean's never been explored. Most of the known cosmos beyond our reach has never been understood. We only know 4% of what we live on, and even that 4%, science says it changes about every 100 years. So we don't even know the 4% we think we know, yet we're going to say that we know God. And everybody has their perception, and they live in their perception until God changes that perception, because the perception always betrays you whenever circumstances go beyond the power of your perception. You with me? So it's important for us to be neutral. 
with Jesus, letting him change us, letting him constantly mend our view of who he is. Because anybody who ever gets settled in one thing may be right in one specific area, but they're wrong in the rest of the things that include God. And this is how religions are built. Somebody keys and hones in on one specific thing, and then they are wrong about the rest, and they think that one thing is everything, when I think everything is him. You with me? So it's, it's important. It's important to readjust how we see God constantly in our lives because God's constantly working in, through, and on us and around us. He's constantly forming us. Why? So that we can feel better in our own skin? No, but that's usually the version of Christianity we're pursuing. We want to feel comfortable with ourselves. However, God's not so much concerned about how you feel about yourself. He's concerned about how you feel about the rest of the world who's dying. <laughs> See, so if the rest of the world is dying, doesn't believe your theology, then your theology is useless. It's only good to you. And that's already saved you, so therefore it does, it's, it's worked its work, it's had its way, and if nobody's listening to it, you kind of reached your, your pinnacle. You can go no higher. This makes sense. Okay. So, how we perceive God and how we perceive ourselves many times puts us in a posture and a position where we are completely removed from God's reality because we're considering our own reality. How many of you guys would like to trade your reality for his? I mean, I know I would. Mine's pretty bad, even on a good day. What I want to talk to you about today is, is, um, is how God perceives us, how we perceive ourselves, and how that completely disassociates us from the relationship with God we're supposed to have. You with me? How many of you did everything absolutely perfect this last week? No hands? It's amazing. And even our perfect theology doesn't make us what we believe. That's how weak it is. Yet we're willing to staunchly and boldly get in the face of someone theologically and, and defend our faith when it's not even working in our practical circumstances. <laughs> I find it comical, us human beings, myself included, especially. I'm constantly in need for redefinition of Jesus to change my life and to change who I am and to change my, my, my faculties. When someone who believes in Jesus begins to suffer a sin or a failure or a moral disposition that's opposite to the word of God, something begins to happen. How many of you guys, when you fail at something, you tend to recluse and pull away? You make a mistake, something happens, maybe it's a big sin, something, something horrible happens, and then all of a sudden you find yourself disassociating from God, from prayer, from church, from people, from relationship. Do you know why that is? Because shame is the first fruit of sin. But what shame does is it reconditions the brain. Shame propagates demonic repentance. Okay, let me define repentance, because everybody thinks repentance is coming to the altar, having someone pray over you, you cry a few tears, you say you're sorry for your sins, and you go back to your seat. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing how you think. The biblical definition of repentance is to change your mindset of how you view and think and process something. So there's a demonic repentance, and then there's a spiritual heavenly repentance. Culture creates repentance. 
We see that. If you rewind and you were, if you jumped into a time machine, went back 75 years, you would not see the things you see in this culture 75 years ago. Culture has changed people's mindsets on certain sin and reality and existence. Culture creates repentance. You with me? The first time Jesus shows up on the scene as a human being, preaching a message, he starts it with what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you can't use your moral Christian Jewish culture to understand what I'm about to teach you next. Because what I'm about to teach you next comes from a realm you do not know or access. So you've got to change how you view me, yourself, and the Bible, and everything that has to do with what you think God is, or you're not going to understand what I'm about to say. And it was proven because every time Jesus began to speak, many people were like, what are you saying? Why are you saying it like this? Why are you talking in parables and riddles? How come we can't understand you? Because he was saying, you need to repent. So if you take a Christian culture who's immersed in shame, she's not able to properly perceive her relationship with God, which she proudly says she has. Because then her relationship with God that she says she has is completely revolving around the shame of the sin that she presents herself with, and then it's all about the sin, it's not about him, and then she has a warped theology. You with me? Yes. How many of you ever have a real down week and you, you come to church or you come to serve or you come to do something in ministry or whatever it might be and you just don't feel worthy because of the week you've had? You know what that is? It's a mindset of shame. Because somehow you'll tell me theologically that it's all about grace through faith. Yeah, but when it comes to practical reality, it's all about how you perform. It's real quiet. Do I need to tell another joke? No? So shame creates its own thriving environment by feeding off the illusion of failure. Let me, let's just, let me ask you this. Let me just, be, be honest. Has anybody ever felt like in their life that they've truly made it? Like they've truly succeeded, they've, they've truly made it, they've arrived, they've achieved everything that they've ever wanted in their life. They've, they, they, they're, they're completely satisfied right now. If nothing ever else happened for them, to them, with them, they would be like, I can die a happy man. Anybody? It's amazing. Failure creates the illusion that you are not a success. Okay, wait a minute. If this entire Christianity that we're birthed into is by Jesus pursuing us, him coming to the cross, him doing what he had to do, him fulfilling the law, him dying, him shedding his blood, him redeeming us, him raising us from the dead, him including us in heavenly places, and being the author and the finisher of our faith, then really what's left for you and I except for just to what? Believe and obey. That's it. You know what stops the obedience part and the believing part? It's the how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive God that keeps us, we keep God at arm's distance because we're still not worthy of him. Are you with me? 
So sin gives birth to death. Death brings shame. Shame empowers the lie. Failure has its roots in the lie. Does make sense? Yes. I want you to go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start verse 62. We're going to read one verse there, and then we're going to plop to some other ones. But I want to give a context of failure here, because I don't believe anybody in here doesn't deal with it. I know people in this room who walked with Jesus for 40 plus years and they deal with failure. I know people who have been saved for a week and they deal with failure. Failure is you putting your eyes on yourself. Period. Well, if you look at you, you're always going to be disappointed. The only person who can look at you and not be disappointed is Jesus. Not your friends, not your kids, not your wife, not your husband. The only person that has the ability to look at you without disappointment is Messiah Jesus. If you look at yourself, you can be disappointed. It doesn't take long for you to investigate your own life to come up feeling short, feeling inadequate, and feeling completely powerless, useless, worthless, hopeless. You with me? Okay. All right. Making sure you all didn't just leave. All right. So, so failure is a perception that, that you didn't live up to the standard around you. Right? So Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, he says, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus used a lot of farming parables because they understood that now. Today, we don't understand these things because nobody knows how to plant a garden unless the seeds are already started for them. And even then, they kill it. So Jesus was saying here, like when, back in those days, when you plowed a row, and it's the same thing today, if you didn't keep looking straight ahead of you and fix your eyes on one specific point, then the row behind you began to be twisted and curvy, which affected the harvest. You with me? Yes. Everything was about the harvest. It had nothing to do with the work. The work had to do with the harvest. So Jesus is saying, if you put your hand to my kingdom, to my work, which later on in Matthew, or, uh, Matthew 11, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? I will give you rest. In other words, I'll do all the work. You just walk with me. I'll be with you. I'll pull the hard stuff. You let me give you peace in your life. You let me give you rest in your life. You let me pull this thing, and, I, and, and it'll all be all right, right? But if you put your hand to that and you start looking back, then all of a sudden you start going astray. You know what the word sin means? It means to miss the mark. In other words, your road's not straight. What happens when people look backwards? What are they looking back to? Where they came from? Where they were? Where they've been? Where they've lived? What they've done? All the things that create what? Shame, failure, you with me? You follow me? 
If you're looking back, you can't plow with Jesus the proper way. If you're looking backwards over your life, you don't have any ability to keep your eyes fixed on where you're going. Does this make sense? This is why people week to week get pulled off of their faith. Tell me somebody in here who actually wants to go pray right after they sin. The desire to see God right after sin is just not present. Why? Because what you think about is what you worship. What you ponder in your brain is what you worship. Worship is an energy. It's a focus. It's what you sacrifice. And if you're giving your mind to shame and your past and your sin and your failure and your fear and your doubt and all the things that you did wrong in this situation, that situation, I don't care if it's doing something wrong in ministry, on the stage, out in the world, in your past, I don't care what it is, but if you're focused on those types of things, you're not focused on the mentality of Jesus Christ in your life. You're focused on what you've done wrong and not what he has done right. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking bad is, is fit for the kingdom. In other words, to properly live in the kingdom, you have to be moving forward with the master who's plowing the road of the kingdom. If you're looking back to what you have been set free from, you are instantly separated from the kingdom you were brought into. Does it make sense? So, so if we define ourselves by our abilities, then we don't need Christ. Like somehow success is you doing everything right throughout the week. Well, if that was the case, then you don't need Jesus. You with me? Like somehow you're going to get this version of Christianity basically that moves you to a specific point where you don't need God anymore. Congratulations, you're now your own deity. That's what we want. And that's what we expect of the pastor and everybody on the worship team and all the rest of the people in the church. And if we find fault, failure, or anything in anybody else other than ourselves, then we're going to take our marbles and go play somewhere else. It's amazing to me that most of Christianity in modern America basically exists to move ourselves to a point where we don't need God anymore. Like somehow you will be a better person and everybody will bow at your feet and kiss your sandals if you make it through a week without failing or screwing up and all praise to you. It is your failure that brings you to the proper position, which is at the feet of the king. So if your failure brings you to a perfect posture, then why is failure a bad thing? Because you have accepted the society's definitions of what failure actually means. And you're not perceiving yourself the way God perceives you. You're perceiving yourself the way you perceive you and the way society perceives you. Which means your opinion of yourself and society's opinion of yourself is more important to you than God's opinion of you. Nobody wants to admit to that. I didn't hear any amens. Right? Uh, I forgot to tell you guys, if you came looking for a real fluffy message, you came to the wrong church. <laughs> Brian, you probably need to start announcing that when you're praying over people when they come in. <laughs> See, failure is a mindset that's been hijacked by darkness. 
Anytime somebody gets in that mindset and that mentality, they begin to go farther and farther away from the Lord. I've known people who, let's just say, let's just take, um, um, oh, let's just take addiction, for example. Somebody drinks alcohol for 45 years or a drunk, and then all of a sudden God sets them free. And they go through four or five years, man, they're good, they're good. And all of a sudden, something happens in their life, and they get this major this death blow. Something happens to them, and then, and then there sits you know, a bottle of beer or something happens, and they start drinking again. They take one drink, and all of a sudden, the shame, the shame, the failure, all that stuff comes on them, and they, they see all the time lost and everything. And now all of a sudden, their sobriety chips aren't important anymore, and they have to throw them all away and start all over. And then they're like, well, I've already drank one. I might as well drink two. And then if I drink two, I might as well drink ten. Instead of stopping and going, thank you, God, for the forgiveness and the grace that has brought me to the new blood of the covenant, and that no matter what I do, I will always fail, but you will always succeed. And stopping right there and turning around and coming back to the king, they stop and they go right back into darkness, all the way full tilt into it because of failure, Repenting their brains. Yes. Does it make sense? Yes. And then you see him go on another three to four year binge, and then it goes from that to back to the drugs and back to everything else, and then they're fat, they're right back where they started. Why? Because the devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy your mind, your heart, and your life. And he doesn't do it just because of something that's external. The external comes in because of what you're doing internally in your own head. Addiction has power because you believe it, because you believe the failure, the fear. That's just one example. Depression can be the same way. Offense. All these things can start to happen because we don't take control of our thoughts. We're thinking more about ourselves or our neighbor or something else than we are with God. And then our theology that we say we believe in so powerfully actually loses all power in all those moments in our lives and drags us down back to where we started because the focus of our life is not Jesus Christ. See, we think the blood only has power as long as we don't need it. Like we spend our whole Christian life trying to basically not use the blood of Jesus. I don't understand that. Should we sin? No. But when we sin, what should we do? We should boldly use the blood. But you know what we do? We boldly use failure and fear and shame. Does this make sense? Fear is an indicator. Failure is an indicator that your mind is not renewed and you need repentance. You know, you know when you fail? I'll tell you when you fail. It's when you engage in something you were never created to do in the first place. Like, like be God over someone else, over your spouse, over yourself. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you should usurp your opinion over somebody else's. In fact, it says the exact opposite. I have a lot of people who disagree with me, but I still want to be their friend. Because in the end of the day, it's not about what I think or believe. It's about what Jesus believes. 
But you know what we do? The moment we find someone we disagree with, they are outcasts. I'm going to unfriend you. There. I feel so much better. <laughs> no, you don't. Sit there and stir that stuff in your head all day long after you unfriend them. <laughs> Failure is simply self-focus. That's all it is. Go to Luke 22, verse 31. There's an interesting point here. Jesus has been walking with his disciples for quite a bit of time. And I always thought it interesting that this happens toward the end of Jesus' relationship, earthly relationship with his disciples instead of it happening somewhere in the middle of the beginning. Jesus looks at... Um, Peter, in uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, he says, Peter, Simon, the Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But listen to this, verse 32. So there's two different mindsets seen in these two verses that you can go to. Verse 32, he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So what happened here? Jesus tells them ahead of time, you're going to be sifted. You're going to fail. But I've prayed your faith wouldn't fail. And when you're converted, take care of everybody else. Toward the end of his life, this happens. So what we call failure, God calls sifting. Think about it. Jesus said, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail. Let me ask you this. If you were one of the 12 and you heard Jesus say that to Peter and then you watched him deny Jesus, what would you think? You thought Jesus made a mistake. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, you said he wouldn't fail. He just failed. What did Jesus say? I've prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. So let me ask you this. Did Peter's faith fail or did it not? According to man's definition, yes. According to God's, no. You see how God thinks differently than we do? All you smart theological people here who think you have everything so far down in your Bible and you know everything and all this stuff, do you realize that if you used the power of your discernment, you wouldn't have picked any of the 11 disciples that Jesus picked? <laughs> Jesus sits you down and be like, hey, we need to choose 11 more. Can you help me? Yeah, yeah. Peter comes by, man, well, I'm picking up some betrayal on this guy. Like my spirit's just getting stirred. I, I think maybe this guy, talk, I, I, he's just dangerous. We need to stay away from that guy. Thomas walks by. I'm really spirit, sensing the spirit of unbelief on this guy. Who would you have picked? Yourself and no one else? You realize Jesus picked Judas? Could you do that? Choosing your church staff? Well, that's just not wise to put Judas over the finance department. He's a thief. You see what God calls wisdom is different than what you call wisdom? You know what you call wisdom is self-preservation. Simple. You know what God calls wisdom? The cross. First Corinthians. 
That's not self-preservation. That's self-sacrifice. You see, you see what I'm saying here? So the difference between the way Jesus looks at Peter and the world of the disciples looked at Peter is different. In other words, the way you see yourself is different than the way God sees you. In fact, one of your failures that you thought was so bad may be viewed differently by the Lord than it was by you. I went through a really dark time in my life, but the dark time that I went through in my life brought forth major restoration and resurrection in my life. And I'm going to prove to you that on the final day of judgment, that portion of my life will never even be considered. Yet, the enemy still tries to get me to what? Consider it. Why? Because whatever's dead has to stay dead unless you, who have the power of resurrection, bring it back to life. No man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. When you look back, you raise the dead. What are you raising? What Jesus killed. The old you. The old defined you. When you consider yourself in your flesh, you are considering something that Jesus put to death. That is rebellion. It's not self-pity. It's rebellion. What God calls, what we call failure, God calls sifting. Amen? So when you're sifted, you're going to look like you end up failing. But whose reality are we talking about? Yours or his? With me? Mark 9, 23, you don't have to turn there. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. All things. When God says all things are possible who believes, and he uses the word all, I don't think he was excluding anything. It's God. He's not a playing on words. He's not like us who's trying to hype or bring something down or move people with emotion. When God says something, when Jesus says something, who is the word, and he sealed this as scripture, all things are possible to him who believes. Nothing is impossible to him that believes. What about believing even after you failed? Hebrews 11, let's go. I'm going to prove this to you before I run out of time and you guys get bored. Hebrews 11, verse 7. I'm going to go through some scriptures here and show you the difference of how God looks at people versus how people look at people. Let me ask you this. If I were to be able to have the power to lay hands on you and impart any biblical anointing of any specific character in the Bible on you, and I said, we're going to pray that you receive the Samson anointing, how many of you would actually come up here? Anybody want to be like him? disobey every rule God ever gave her his life, live in complete rebellion, marry a heathen woman, have all your powers stripped from you, have your eyes gouged out, and then die with your enemies. Anybody? No? Okay. No takers. All right. All right, verse 7, by faith, Noah, 
being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Do you realize that, that if Noah was a preacher, okay, the Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. The whole known world at the time was listening to Noah preach. You know how many people he got saved? Eight. How long did it take him to build the ark? 120 years? Okay, you preach for 120 years and you only get eight people born again. Anybody want that anointing? Come on up here. Is that a success or is that a failure? Why do you, why do you think it's a, you think it's a success because you know the end of the story? What if it was your life and it's 120 years of you preaching, you're getting up every morning preaching and preaching and building and preaching and no one's listening to you for 120 years and you barely get your family saved? Is that a success or is that a failure? What would you see that as in your life? See, 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 when you read the Bible, do not disassociate reality from what you're reading. This is not some children's storybook of made-up fables. These are people's real lives. Not only that, they are your spiritual paternal inheritance. They are your fathers in the faith. They look from heaven to your life and stand there watching you because they know they are directly connected to you and you are directly connected to them. You are their offspring. These are not generic people. They lived with passions and desires and hopes and dreams and saw them dashed. Don't tell me a preacher of righteousness doesn't have a fire burning in his heart to save the world. And yet he only manages to save eight people. Imagine, you're Noah, you're on the boat. Yeah, I think, I think we think Noah was just this cold, heartless man sitting on that boat chuckling and everybody didn't believe it. It sucks to be you. I can see that guy standing on that ark, weeping over all the souls, the screaming, the hands, the babies, mothers holding babies up out of the water, take my child. And he's just like, I can't. I tried to tell you. I preached, I preached my guts out. And you wouldn't listen. How do you think? Do you think he felt like a success? <laughs> At least I made it. No, he probably felt like the biggest failure in the world. I could have got two more. Maybe three. Could have made it ten. But see, what we call failure, God calls success. See, if you don't know what I'm reading right now in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is the heroes of faith. It's the chapter in the Bible where God designates a specific chapter to outline certain people and say, these are my generals. These are the ones that stood in faith. These are the ones whom I look to. These are the ones who changed history. These are the ones who I'm eternally recognizing in the word of God. I'm pulling them out of the Old Testament in what everybody thought they were failures in, and I am redeeming their name and their life by mentioning them in the category and the hero of faith. There's a museum in heaven and certain names are going to be there and certain names won't. These guys are there. 
By faith, Noah, in other words, Noah is a hero of faith. He succeeded. Did he succeed or did he fail? He succeeded. Did the world think he succeeded or did the world think he failed? Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place in which he should receive for inheritance, he obeyed. He went out not knowing where he went. By faith, he lived in a land of promise as a stranger in a country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, with the heirs of him of the same promise. Verse 10, he looked for a city whose foundation, whose builder and maker was God. Through faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who promised. Therefore, sprang even even there of one of him as good as was dead, so many as the stars of the sky and multitude and the sand which is the sea, innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but saw it far off and were persuaded by the promise and embraced the promise and confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers in the earth. Here, God puts Abraham and Sarah as a hero of the faith, ones who did not fail, but succeeded. Go to Romans 4, 16. It says, therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end of the promise that it might be made sure to all seed, not only to them which are of the law, but also which are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I made you the father of many nations, Abraham, before whom he believed, even God raised the dead, calling those things which are not as though they were. Listen to this. Abraham, verse 18, who against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall your seed be. This is interesting, verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not. He did not stumble at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And because of this, it was given to him for righteousness. When I read that the first time, I thought, that's wrong. Verse 19, how many of you know the story of Abraham? If you know the story of Abraham and you read verse 19, wait a minute, something's wrong. Let me read verse Genesis 17, 15. God comes to tell Abraham he's going to have a child. And God said to Abraham, your wife Sarah You'll not call her Sarai anymore, but you'll call her Sarah. I'll bless her. I'll give her a son of you, and I'll bless her, and she will be the mother of nations and kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, how can a child be born of him that is 100 years old and Sarah that is 90 years old? Okay, 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 okay. Not only does he not believe, not only did he, did he consider the deadness of Sarah's womb, but when God came to him and showed up in physical form and told him, you're going to have a child, he fell on his face, holding his belly, laughing. I, I don't know about you, but usually when angels come on the scene, they usually say, fear not. He's sitting here chuckling. What did that indicate to you? If, if I came to you and said, no, God's going to do this in your life, and you just start laughing at me. So wait, which rendition is true? Is the Bible against itself? No. 
what it's showing here is that God doesn't consider circumstances and decisions and situations the way we do. We look at this and go, man, he doubted. And not only that, he screwed it up big time. He didn't wait on God and he went and got another girl pregnant and now we have a big problem in the world just because of that one sin. How is that not unbelief? I mean, have you ever made a choice that literally birthed a nation that persecutes most of the world? And yet, God doesn't account this to Abraham's report. When it's spoken of in the New Testament, God says absolutely nothing about Abraham falling on his face and laughing. He says absolutely nothing about him creating Ishmael. He says absolutely nothing about it. Why? Because in God's realm, what God sees as success is different than what we see as success. What you call success is absolutely impossible because it's called perfection. And you can't have it. I can't have it. It's reserved for him. How you see your story is not how God sees your story. But how you see your story determines how your story ends. In other words, God's fighting you for your definition of your story and you're sitting here through failure and shame telling him, no, you're wrong. I screwed up. Your blood isn't good enough. I've done this and that and this and that. And he says, you don't know how I work. And then Genesis 18, same thing. Sarah laughs. And she's arguing with God. And God's like, you just laughed. Why did you laugh? She's like, oh, I didn't laugh. She's like, pfft. I'm God. You laughed. Why? Because faith is seen in long-term fruit. It's not seen in the doubt of the circumstance. In other words, how you end is more important than how you start. This is why Jesus reserved for himself the name that's called this, the author and the finisher of our faith. Are we talking about Hebrews 11? We're talking about faith and the perception of failure. Who authors it and who finishes it? You mean you don't? Wait, wait, wait. I thought you, you had to believe. Well, I do. Well, then why, is it, why does it call him the finisher of our faith? Because his opinion of our faith is much different than our opinion of our faith. Which one do you want? You know, just Jesus told me this one day. I was praying and I just was kind of feeling a little bit low. And he said, you know, my relationship with you is stronger than your relationship with me. And I realized I was putting a lot of faith in my relationship that I had with God. But then I realized I wasn't putting hardly any faith in, in the relationship he had with me, which is far greater. Because the relationship's two-way street, is it not? But see, our theologies are always consistent upon our relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus. <laughs> well, that's all fine and good, but your relationship with Jesus will break at some point. You are not faithful. He is faithful. 
So it's better to have his faith in his relationship with me than it is for me to have my faith in my relationship with him. His is stable, mine is not. Why am I surprised when mine is not stable? I don't know, because I'm arrogant. I don't know. I say that generically for us, even though it's the same thing for me. We're arrogant. Okay. Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. Talking about a guy who was proud and arrogant and told his brothers, you're going to bow before me. So I'll get up and get used to it. They got mad at him, threw him in a pit, spent most of his life in prison, ridiculed, despised, serving a heathen nation, gave him a heathen name, grew up not in the land of promise, away from his people, away from his forefathers. Saved the heathen nation that was going to, form, that was going to enslave his own people. Does that look like a success to you? I mean, you know, you, you, you kept the nation alive that was about to put your own people in slavery. Good job, Joseph. Wisdom would have said, let them starve. Right? By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hid for three months and his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, he was come to years, refused to be called upon by Pharaoh's daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of treasures of Egypt, for he respects the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. That is a huge verse that you need to memorize. Verse 27. Verse 28. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest that he destroy the firstborn of the, of, uh, that should touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea of the dry land, which the Egyptians tried to do and were drowned. Moses seems like a success. However, he's a murderer. Doesn't say anything about it in Hebrews 11, does it? How come it doesn't say anything about him killing that Egyptian? See, the things you're worried about isn't the things God's worried about. See, God has the power and the blood to forgive your sin, but he can't stop your unbelief. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with them that believed not, yet when she received the spies with peace. How many want the Rahab anointing? You get to be a prostitute and betray your own country. Anybody want that anointing? No? Nobody wants that anointing? See, how come the Bible didn't say anything about her past? In fact, Rahab was actually the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. See, God doesn't look at what you look at. See, if you, if you would judge yourself, you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not fit to be a part of the kingdom of God because I was a prostitute for 34 years. And God says, no, I think you'll be my, the grandmother of my, my, my only begotten son. You see what I'm saying? So what is it in you that causes your mind to stray so far to think you are so unworthy in your relationship with Jesus and be so disconnected because you had a bad week? 
don't tell me you don't go that way sometimes. You don't spend time with God because you maybe messed up or you got angry or somebody made you mad or you, somebody cut you off in traffic and you flipped them off and you got an I Love Jesus sticker, bumper sticker on. And you're like, oh, no. He says, what, 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 what more am I going to say? Verse 32, time would fail to tell me of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, and David also, Samuel, and the prophets. Gideon, full of fear, least of the least, a nobody in Israel, the smallest guy in the smallest tribe, stuck in a hole threshing his wheat because he's afraid of the enemy. God comes to him, finds him in a hole, and calls him what? A mighty man of valor. A mighty man of valor don't hide in holes. Why? Because God's opinion of us is different than our opinion of ourselves. Mary, 13 years old, faithful little house girl, not important, not dynamic, not animated. The angel comes, looks at her and says, you are blessed and highly favored of God. Me? Her life, by her example, by her opinion, by opinion of society, absolutely worthless, meaningless, useless. God says, you're going to be the mother of my child. What God sees is what we do not see. Barak, he wouldn't go to war without a woman backing him up because he was afraid. What in the world? And he didn't get the glory of the victory that he would have, should have got because another woman took down the king he was supposed to, to take down. Was that a success? No, in fact, two women get praised in the song and he doesn't really have much to, to, to do with the, the victory. <laughs> that seems like a failure. But what does Hebrews 11 say? He's a hero of the faith. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Samson, like I said earlier, disobeyed absolutely every command that God gave him. Go look it up. Everything God told him not to do, he did it. And he's included in the heroes of faith. Why? Because God views us differently. It was how Samson finished that made him a hero. He did not count the value of his own life. He counted the value of the safety of his people at the sacrifice of himself. And God said, that's something I can get behind. Jephthah, cast out by his family, persecuted, made a horrible vow. They caught him off from being able to have any offspring from his children. That seems like a huge failure. Go read the story. God says you're a hero. David, murderer and adulterer. Hebrews 12.1 because we are encompassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, what kind of witnesses? These witnesses who were earthly failures but heavenly successes. Because these type of people are backing your life, you should lay aside every sin and weight that easily besets you and run the race with patience set before you. In other words, plow your field straight. Verse two, why? Because looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despite 
despising the shame, was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, and you need to live your life looking forward, not behind, not what you were, not what you did wrong. I don't care if it was yesterday, two minutes ago, or two years ago, or 25 years ago. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. That's what you have to look at. Why don't you? It's simple because you're too self-preferential. You prefer yourself and how you feel about yourself more than how God feels about you. Who cares how you feel about yourself? That will not be what you're judged by. God doesn't honor self-pity. With me? Romans 8, 38, and I'll close this up quick. I say that, but we'll try. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any creature would be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's an interesting end to verse 38. I am, I'm pre- he says, I'm, I'm convinced neither things present nor things to come. There's one piece of time that's missing in this verse. You know why? Because Jesus owns it, you don't. And if you go back and touch what he owns, you're a thief. He paid for it. He bought it. He owns it. You don't get to touch it. I don't care how you feel about it. How do I know that? In 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, Let no man glory in men, for everything is yours. Whether Paul, of Apollos, of Peter, of the world, of life, of death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. There's another piece of time missing there, and it is what? Again, the past. He says, everything is yours, except one thing, the past. Yet how many Christians consistently live in that piece of time they do not own? And they call that Christianity. Failure removes you from your purpose. That's why it's dangerous. If you're removed from your purpose, God cannot use you as he normally and would want to use you in every situation. Failure puts you in the posture of being used by hell. Because when you feel like a failure, you're going to lash out not only at yourself, but everybody else around you. And guess what? The more you look at where you fail, the more prone you are to be looking at where everybody else fails too. And then pretty soon, the only thing you're good at is picking splinters out of everybody else's eye but your own. It's interesting that God doesn't remove those things from our eyes. He says, you do it yourself. How are you going to see clearly enough to pick something out of your own eye unless you first clearly see who he is? The interesting thing, though, is is that when you clearly see who he is, you lose the desire to pick at anybody else's eye, including your own. 
As long as failure's present in your mind, you're not accomplishing what you were sent on earth to do. It's a distraction. The enemy uses it to keep you chasing your tail, lying to you, telling you that you can be some sort of object of perfection that you're never going to attain. And as long as he keeps you chasing after that specific idol of perfection that what you think you're going to look like, you'll take your eyes off of Jesus and then your row ceases to be straight. Stand with me. If any of you have recognized any of this mindset in your head, you have a journey to go on with you and the Lord. A moment here at the altar is not going to fix that, though I'm not opposed to that. You have to repent. And if repentance is the changing of how you think, then you have to do it enough to create a habit to where it becomes the normal operation of how you think, just the same way the old became an operative reaction in your life. You have to change how you're thinking constantly. Sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, and even years. But if you stand and fight and believe what God said you are in regardless of how you feel and stop looking at your failures and your sickness and your sin and everything else and keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, you will recognize one day you're not thinking those thoughts about yourself or anybody else anymore. You'll find you're a lot less critical. You're a lot less judgmental. You've got a lot more grace. You've had grace for yourself, so now you're freely able to give it to somebody else. You know why? Because how you treat yourself is how you treat others. You see mean people, it's real easy. They're constantly beating themselves up in the inside. Now, they won't admit that to you, but that's what they're doing. And they have to alleviate the guilt somehow, so they attack somebody else. So if that's you, then I, I just want to lead you in a, in a prayer, just a short prayer, to ask the Lord to forgive us, to wash us with the water of the word, and to begin again anew in your relationship with Jesus by focusing again on the thing that you're supposed to focus on. Because I don't care how long you've done this. The devil can sneak in and get you focused on what you did wrong or somebody else did wrong, and then all of a sudden you get back into that critical nature. So, Father, we thank you that your grace is good. And we thank you for every failing and every sifting that we've had in our life, every time where we've disappointed others, ourselves, or even you. Because those things are bringing us to what we're at right now, this posture right now of saying, God, you're good enough and we're not. And if you'll have us, we'll give you everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I ask you to forgive me for entertaining thoughts about me that you do not have about me. And I ask for you to forgive me for looking over my shoulder. And I ask, Father, that you'd sharpen my vision to look to Jesus, who is both the beginning and the end of my faith. And everything in between, Lord, is just me choosing to look back to what has been finished. We thank you for those great, powerful words that you spoke on that cross, sealing everything for those who follow and love you with all their hearts. It is finished if we believe it and we walk in it and we adhere to it for our lives. So I ask Holy Spirit that you'd give grace and power to every person here that when they start thinking things that are not accurate and true over their life, that you would quickly convict them and bring them back to the place where they're thinking the thoughts of Jesus Christ for themselves, 
for their families, for their church, for their nation, their country, and their world. We love you, Abba. We thank you for your patience with us. We ask for continued mercies to do these things and operate in them fully so that one thing can be accomplished, and that is your glory. We love you. Amen and amen.